I'm Alex. I'm the associate pastor here at Gateway. Ed and Diane are on vacation for the next couple of weeks, so remember to pray for them as they're sitting on the beach relaxing. We're going to start this morning by reading a passage of Scripture that will kind of lay some context for us as we talk about our summer series in First Peter called Endure, and I've enlisted Rebecca's help. And so let's look at the words up on the screen. Hopefully you can see this, and I'm going to ask you guys, including our elementary kids that are in the service with us, I want you guys to read and follow Rebecca on the bold print uh, sentences, and I'm going to do the others, and we'll just kind of take turns and read through this. So take it away, Rebecca. Now, moms and dads, we're yeah. going to read slow, so hopefully our school-agers can keep up, okay? So kids, use your eagle eyes and sound out your words. We'll go ahead and get started. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow, for when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. We can rejoice, too, when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that it is at work within us. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Uh, let's bow our heads and I'm going to open us with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the elementary kids that are with us in the service this morning. We pray that they would grow comfortable in your house and that the childlike faith they have would lead them at an early age to follow you. And may we follow their example. We pray for the kids and teenagers who are at camp and going to camp. It's such a powerful time when young people get away from all of the distractions of life and they're able to focus on who you are and the truth of your word. So we pray that you would change them this week. And this morning for us, as we gather, we ask that you would use your word to change our hearts. The, the power comes from your word, not from the speaker or the teacher. And I confess that I am like every other person in this room, a messed up, inadequate person. So I pray that you would speak in spite of my frailties and that you would encourage us and challenge us and move us by the power of your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, if you were here last week, that we started a sermon series in the book of 1 Peter. Every summer around here, we take a book of the Bible, and we kind of work our way through it over seven to ten weeks in the summer, and we ask and encourage people to read along with us. 1 Peter only has five chapters, so you could read through it lots of times this summer and really get comfortable with the content. 
And we call the series Endure. Ed last week kind of gave a good overview and, and covered the first couple of verses, but we want to take a look at a video this morning. It's just a, a little snippet of a video that will kind of give us a big picture view of what First Peter is about. So take a look and then we'll jump in. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the 12 disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros, or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years, and that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learned that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all... Okay, so you get the idea. I think it's interesting that Ed covered two verses last week, left town, and gave me nine. He finished in about 40 minutes, so that will take me about three hours. But the reason that we're digging into 1 Peter is because it speaks a lot about endurance. So this morning, this passage that we're going to look at is uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, nine verses that in the original language were all one long run-on sentence. And in Greek, that's considered a good thing. In English, not so much. So we're going to try to break it down and make sense of it. But it's very poetic. It's almost like a psalm or a hymn. Really well written. Very powerful in places. But we want to break it down and try to glean some practical ideas from it. So let's read this together. I'm going to read. You can follow along on the screen. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you 
searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So Peter, in, in starting this letter to his, his listeners, he's, he's talking about endurance and the overarching idea that he's going to focus on in these passages is that salvation is the foundation for your endurance. If there's anything unique to how Christians respond to hardship or suffering or struggles, then it begins with salvation. Now, that term salvation probably means different things to different people. If you are someone who feels maybe more like an outsider looking in, and church is maybe new to you, or you're not sure where you stand with the whole Bible, is it really God's Word? And there's so many different paths to God, is this the right one? What about other religions? It's important that you understand salvation is not just this fluffy, wispy, pie in the sky, by and by, I'll fly away. It's not that kind of a concept at all. It's a very practical, substantive concept, and Peter goes to great lengths to let us know what he means by the term salvation, because it, it makes a big impact on our day-to-day -day life. So let me give you a working definition that may help you just think about salvation. When, when Peter says salvation, he means an interactive, ongoing relationship with God. And it's available because of a relationship with Christ. We believe in faith, what Jesus did on the cross. And it impacts not just our eternal destination, but the way we live here on earth today. So it's this ongoing relationship. It's based on what Jesus has done for us. And it impacts not just where we end up down the road in heaven, but it impacts how we live our life today. So Peter starts this by talking about the nature of salvation. In other words, what is it? How does it work? Tell me more about the substance of it. And he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So already in the very first words of this, he's, he's stressing this relationship with a father. And he's making it clear that anyone who wants to walk in Jesus' footsteps, they're not just serving the omnipotent God of the universe, not someone who's distant and disconnected and looking down on us, but a father who loves us and desires a relationship with us. Jesus told his disciples, if you want to know what the father is like, then you look at me. Now, Jesus took away the penalty for our disobedience to God. And if we accept that in faith and we make him the leader of our life and we follow him, then we become adopted into God's family. We become his sons and daughters. And there are rights and privileges that go along with that relationship. When we make a mistake, there may be consequences for our actions. But God doesn't stop being our father simply because we've made a mistake or a wrong choice. That relationship is there from start to finish. And Father implies protection and provision, watching over us, a knowledge and authority that's beyond our own. Father is above the children, okay? So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, Peter says, so God, the creator of the universe, is just and righteous. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, and when He exercises His wrath, it is always justified. And yet, our Father acts in His great mercy because He's compassionate 
and patient and gracious. It's not because we've done anything to deserve His mercy at all. It's just the opposite. In spite of everything that we've done, God, because He is kind and compassionate, chooses to respond to us in mercy. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth. Now, that's a weird way of phrasing it, but it's actually a very useful way of thinking about it. Remember, Jesus met with Nicodemus in John's biography about Jesus. Nicodemus was a religious leader, and he wanted to talk to Jesus because he was curious about this new rabbi's teaching. And Jesus said, hey, Nicodemus, you know a lot of stuff, but unless you are born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was really puzzled by that. He's like, wait, so how do I get back into my Wait, that's just, that's weird. And Jesus was using that as a word picture of saying like, you cannot fix this on your own. You need a do-over. You need a mulligan. You need a fresh start as if you could just back up everything that's happened up until this point and start with a clean slate. Peter likes this idea of a new birth so much that he uses it twice in this same chapter. And so the idea is a very rich word picture of what it's like when we ask Jesus for forgiveness. And we commit ourselves to following in his footsteps. We get a new start. We're moving in a new direction. It's like a brand new birth. So he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a living hope. Now, it's not just a run-of-the-mill garden variety hope, like, gosh, I hope I get this promotion, or I hope the future, you know, is good for my family and me. Those are great hopes, but those are rather slippery and not, not all that substantial. This is something completely different. This is living hope because it's based on a relationship with a living Savior who rose from the dead. His resurrection is assurance of our resurrection. It reminds us that death holds no sting for those of us who follow Jesus. You may remember that Jesus offered living water to the woman he met at the well. That's how he described salvation for her. Later he said, I am the living bread of life. And then in John 14, 6, he said, I came that you could have life, real life, abundant life, eternal life, life that's really rich and full and meaningful. So Jesus uses this phrase to describe himself living quite often in Scripture, and it's the idea of something that is moving and active and developing. It responds, it reacts. And that's exactly the kind of hope that our salvation is built on. Now, let's say that your eight-year-old goes to school, they learn about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, all of our founding fathers, and they get these guiding principles that established the United States, and their future is built on this hope of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Woohoo! That's awesome. But when they're at the mall and they get separated from you and they get terrified, they are not looking for hope in these idealistic philosophical principles. They're looking for living hope. They're counting on you to hunt them down, to not leave and go home until you find them. They need a living hope, and our hearts cry out for a living hope, and God has given us that. So we have a new birth into a living hope, but also a new birth into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. I don't know if you've ever gotten an inheritance, but generally speaking, you don't get an inheritance from someone who doesn't know you. Generally, there has to be some sort of a relationship. 
And in God's mercy, he gives us this new beginning that leads to an inheritance, one that can't be stolen or destroyed and that will never diminish in value. It's not kept in a bank vault or in a safety deposit box. It's kept in heaven for us until we get there. I'm sure Peter recalled Jesus' teaching about storing up treasure in heaven being far more important than stacking up earthly wealth. And here he's saying that our salvation is like an inheritance that's waiting for us to take possession of it. Now, if a father is poor and he has a, a wealthy, successful businessman for a son and he leaves his wealthy son an inheritance, it's probably going to be fairly small, right? On the other hand, if a wealthy father leaves an inheritance to a son who's pretty poor, the inheritance is big. See, the inheritance is based on the financial worth of the person leaving it to the other person. It has nothing to do with the person who is receiving it. And spiritually speaking, this is incredibly true for us. God doesn't give us this amazing inheritance because, why, we're just wonderful people. Like, our net worth is so amazing, he should give us a big inheritance. It's because his value, his worth, his mercy is so great that he entrusts this to us. And it's a treasure, an inheritance that waits for us in heaven. Now, I'm going to ask a question, but it's very important. This is for people who are fifth grade and below, okay? So you may know the answer to this, but we're going to wait until somebody from our Kidstown area can shout this out. I need somebody to tell me what this is. Go ahead. Captain America Shield, and did you notice the hand was raised too? Give this man a, uh, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. This, this is Captain America's primary implement of destruction and defense and fighting for justice. A shield is a very important tool for a superhero, right? And Peter tells us that this inheritance is not where the blessings of salvation end because God has given us an inheritance in heaven and we are shielded by God's power. So when we place our trust in Christ and we have a saving relationship with God the Father because we've asked Jesus for forgiveness and we believe that his death on the cross was for our salvation, he exerts his power on our behalf to protect us, to defend us, to provide for us. One of my favorite verses we read in that responsive reading, it's Ephesians 3.20 where it says, God is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask for or imagine. But it's according to his power at work within us. So God's power is amazing and powerful, and it works. We wouldn't need a shield if there wasn't opposition, right? It would be not very helpful if Captain America had to run around and use his shield instead of an umbrella. And that's not what shields are for. They protect us. They defend us. And so just because we're Christ followers, it doesn't mean life is going to be easy or comfortable or fun all the time. We experience the same challenges, the same struggles, the same heartaches and hardships that everyone else on earth experiences. But we do not face them on their own. We're shielded by God's power. Peter keeps going. He says, you're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So our salvation is from God the Father who exercises great mercy. He gives us a new beginning and a new birth into a living hope and a heavenly inheritance. And he shields us with his mighty power until he comes again, until the day of judgment when this 
salvation in some form hasn't yet been fully revealed. So keep in mind that the biblical writers thought of salvation in at least three tenses. They thought of it as past tense because God, before the foundations of the world, chose to send his son to die for us. He knew that we were going to make a mistake and that we were going to blow it and need forgiveness. And for us, it's anchored in the past because Jesus died 2,000 years ago and rose again. So those are past tense events. Even before I was born, my salvation was secure because of what Jesus did in the past. Okay? But my salvation is also very much a present day thing. I need God's saving grace as much today as I did 47 years ago when I accepted Christ. Next week, it'll be 47 years. So I received salvation 47 years ago, but I need it just as de desperately today. And God's salvation is working right now in my life, in my heart, giving me grace and mercy, shielding me. All of that is at work in me right now. But there's an element of my salvation that I have not seen yet. The Bible says that one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. To those that bend their knee and confess that now in this life, they get to spend forever with God in eternity. For those who say, I'm not going to do that. I don't buy it. I reject that. And they will still end up confessing and bowing at the end of time. And God will honor their decision in the next life, just like he's given a choice in this life. So one day, everybody will understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us. There is an aspect of salvation that is yet to come. It's not fully in bloom yet, but we can look ahead to that. So Peter has this past, present, and future tense very much in mind when he is thinking about this salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. How many of you guys have played t-ball or softball or baseball? Elementary kids, raise your hand especially. If you're a grown-up, raise your hand too. You can do that. All right. So you understand that in order to be an effective batter, you've got to think about what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. If you wait until the pitch is right there, right where you expect it to be, and you start your swing, you're going to miss it. You're going to get struck out. So you have to look and see what the pitcher is doing. You have to see where the ball is right now. You have to think about where it's going to be, and then you try to meet it all in the middle. You have to skillfully and with some practice bring this past, present, and future stuff all together. And if we're going to face the curveballs in life that are coming at us, we have to have a clear understanding of the past and the present and the future sense of our salvation. Now, what does this mean to us? Great, we got this awesome salvation. What's the takeaway here? I would argue that for many of us, we don't really think about salvation in too much depth until our faith is shaken. We just sort of take it for granted. It could be that we need to become better students of God's redemptive work in the Bible, in the lives of people around us, in our own life, because it'll better help us understand what God is up to, and it will sustain us when times get tough. I also think that we probably need to get better about talking of salvation in terms that other people will understand, in real-world terms. So whether it's our children, or our neighbors, or a friend, we need to talk about our relationship with Christ in practical terms and concrete concepts, like God's mercy, a fresh start, Forgiveness, eternal hope, 
See, if we talk about spiritual things at all, oftentimes we use words that are so spiritual sounding that they don't connect with the people that we're talking to. And I suspect that if we knew more and appreciated more about our salvation, we might be more inclined to talk about it with other people. All right, so Peter begins this passage by talking about the nature of our salvation. And then he ends it by talking about the wonder of our salvation. There's the substance of our salvation, but then the wonder of our salvation. So what an awesome, overwhelming, crazy gift this is for us. So follow along as I read this. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstance to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that was followed. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they weren't serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So on the subject of salvation, even the prophets and angels, kind of the, the superheroes of the Old Testament, they are fascinated by this. So Peter's point is that long ago the prophets spoke so anywhere from 3,500 years before Jesus to 400 years before Jesus stepped into time and space, prophets called God's people to repentance, to turn back from their waywardness and pursue God with their whole hearts. And one of the consistent Old Testament prophetic themes was the idea that a hero was going to come, a Messiah, a Savior, a Rescuer, and He was going to deliver His people. And as God stirred the prophets' hearts and he brought visions and words to mind, they searched intently, trying to make sense of all that God was revealing to them. They used the greatest care to sift and sort the ideas that God put in their heads and their hearts, trying to figure out the details. What does this all mean about when the Messiah will come? Peter says that the Spirit of Christ was working in them. That's interesting because in the very next verse, he calls it the Holy Spirit. These are just two names for the same Spirit. There's God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son, and they're all the same, three in one. But it's interesting, I don't think of Jesus the Spirit acting before his incarnation on earth. I don't think about it, but it makes a lot of sense that the Spirit of Christ was working in the hearts and minds of the prophets, telling them what to tell the people about his coming his eventual suffering, and his eventual glory. And Peter is talking about all prophecies kind of in a general sense here, but I can't think anything other than he had Isaiah 53 in mind. This is where the Jewish concept of the Messiah coming as a suffering servant is crystallized. And most of you have heard these words before. Isaiah says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Peter's saying when those prophets spoke words like that, they were speaking of the Messiah who would come. 
They were inspired by the Spirit of Christ. And they weren't speaking for themselves, for their own people. They didn't understand it. They were speaking for the benefit of Peter's listeners who would come thousands of years later. And for us, even later than that. So that we would have a clearer picture of the salvation that God is offering to us. And it wasn't just the prophets. It was the angels. Even the angels longed to look into these things. Hey, think about it. Angels are like God's minions. You know, they hang out with God all day long. Why would they long to look into these types of things? And I think it's because as angels, they've never rebelled against God. They've never disobeyed Him. They don't know what it's like to be separated from God. And they probably look at us and go like, wait, God, you're giving salvation to Him? You're giving salvation? Do you know what they have done? Are you kidding? Wait, that's way too good a deal. Why are you offering mercy instead of judgment? It's really cool. The, the, the original language here says the angels bow down to get a better look at what's going on. It's like a, a kid who's trying to look and see like what's through the keyhole. And one of my favorite pictures at Gateway is this one. This was taken about 15, 18 months ago. Michelle Jackson was getting baptized in the baptistry up here. And whoever took this photo was like this way, looking towards the steps. And Michelle's son, Noah, some of you know him, Noah was on the steps, and he's just got his eyes peering over. He wanted to know, what's going on with mom? What does this mean? Man, I hope that like the prophets and angels, we look at salvation with such wonder and amazement. We want to know more. Now, there's a third part of this passage that Peter sandwiches in between the paragraphs on salvation. So he starts with salvation and the nature of salvation, and he ends with the wonder of salvation. But between those two, he talks about the connection between hardship and faith. The connection between trials and faith. Let me give you a quick big picture view of of the Bible's perspective on hardship and suffering and trials. At, At a small level, at a very personal level, sometimes we experience difficulty and hardship because we make a mistake. Right? I didn't study for the test. I got a C. Now I can't play football because I didn't pass the academic standard. That's on us. And then at a bigger picture, there are mistakes and bad decisions from other people. Somebody's texting and driving and they run into your parked car. Now you're inconvenienced. Your car is damaged. That wasn't you. That was them. And beyond that, there's the, the fact that we live in a fallen world. God created a beautiful, flawless place. But in the garden... Mankind rebelled and chose to do things their own way. And because of that, our world is falling apart. It's broken. We sometimes refer to it as the curse. We're under the curse of sin. And so our world is decaying. It's unwinding. It's unraveling. Death has entered the world and illness and sickness and evil. And so we live in a broken world. And because of that, sometimes we experience hardship, earthquakes, famine, all kinds of things that are way beyond our control. And then even wider orbit, there is the reality that we face an adversary. The Bible calls him Satan, and he is actively looking for opportunities to hurt us. So if he can blow up our marriage or foul up our relationship with our kids or our adult senior parents, like that brings him to light. He is working actively in the midst of all of this chaos to separate us from God. But at the outermost boundary of this universe of like concentric orbits, there is the fact that God is able to work even in the middle of trouble for our good, to bring 
good and God-honoring purposes. So Romans 8.28 tells us that we know in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Not that all things are good, but God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purposes. So we look at struggle and trial a little bit differently. Peter puts it this way. In all of this and everything that I've told you about your salvation, past, present, and future, you greatly rejoice. But for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, your faith is of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. But that proven genuineness of your faith can result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you haven't seen him, you love him, and even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an, an inexpressible and glorious joy for your receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he says, you know, look, you've got an incredible salvation and in all of that, you can rejoice in all that you know about that. But for a little while, for a season, compared to all of eternity, in this life, there will be trouble and there will be hardship and you will face grief or sorrow or heaviness. Many of his readers were struggling financially or with health concerns or relationally. Some were even being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. Peter says, from God's perspective, you need to understand that these hardships have come to prove that your faith is genuine, to exercise and, and strengthen your faith. And if gold, an earthly treasure, is refined by fire, you know, it's heated to burn off the impurities in it. So if that happens for something that's just a value here on the earth, why would it shock you that God might use hardship to refine our faith, which is of eternal worth? So Christ followers approach hardship and suffering as an opportunity for God to work. It's not that God is trying to trip us up or make life difficult for us. It's he's giving us a chance to put our faith into action and develop a greater confidence in our relationship with him. It doesn't mean that the trial is easy or that the hardship is fun or that we get to look at it philosophically. If you're pinned under a car waiting for help to arrive, there's just no way around it. That sucks, okay? It's not about like, ooh, let me think about all the positives here. It's knowing that even in the most difficult situations in life, God is there for us, and we draw near to Him instead of pulling away. And we put our eyes on the living hope that He has given us. We look for His purposes. We try to be teachable, knowing that the Father in heaven is working for our good, even in the midst of the worst situations. We know that when we suffer because of our faith, we're driven to a deeper relationship with Christ. And ultimately, the result of our faith being tested is praise, glory, and honor when Christ returns. And that future aspect of our salvation is revealed. Perhaps in verse 8, Peter was recalling doubting Thomas. He says, you haven't seen him, but you love him. You remember Thomas was like, well, I'm not going to believe it until I see it with my own eyes. We haven't seen Jesus face to face yet, but like Peter's readers, we love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him. And because of that belief, you can experience an inexpressible and glorious joy. So it may look like here on earth that we are losing by the world's standards. We are being crushed 
we're being overwhelmed by despair, by struggle, by hardship. But in spiritual terms, we're winning. There's a connection between the salvation we experience in the present tense and the salvation we experience in the future. It's almost like we're running a marathon, and I have no experience running marathons, but I've seen my son do one. And it's almost as if you're running your first marathon, you're halfway through, you're dying, and Jesus, who has run the greatest marathon in human history, is just jogging along right there beside you, like, hey, you can do it, it's okay. By the way, I picked up your medal a little bit early, you know, the thing for finishing the marathon, got it right here, it looks really awesome. And hey, why don't you watch your pace here a little bit? Let's pick it up. You got it in you. I've seen you do this. Remember the run last week? So when we are facing hardship, when we're under challenge, Christ is there with us. And we're already receiving the end result of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. So I've got some takeaway thoughts for you. The first one is, for those of you that have kids that are in the service here this morning, I want you over lunch or maybe at dinner tonight to think about what are some of the hardships or challenges that you or your family have faced in the last year or so. And it'll be different for different people in the family, perhaps, but how has God helped you in those, or how might God help you the next time you encounter hardship? Some of you are in the middle of difficult situations right now, in your family, or with your health, or with your finances, or at work, and you you feel overwhelmed. To you, I would say, don't lose sight of your living hope. Draw near to God. Remember that He is daily shielding you by His power. And as best you can, you want to align your plans and purposes with His so that you're behind that shield and what's coming at you is deflected and you're protected. If you're around people who are going through tough seasons, don't avoid them. Sometimes that's, that's you know, it's like, I don't know what to say. Don't avoid them. Draw near. Help them carry the load. Help them in practical ways and realize that God could bless you by just hanging out with them as you see how he's growing their faith, as you see how he is blessing them in the middle of their struggle. One other group of people that I want to address, and that might be somebody who this talk of salvation, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you because that's not been your experience. You haven't gotten to that point where you've made a decision to follow Christ. And I would just suggest that why don't you ask God to make it clear to you to help you discover the truth about who Jesus is and what a relationship with him would look like. For those of us who know salvation and have walked in it, let's not take it for granted. Let's not be so comfortable with it that we don't think about it, that we don't treasure it, that we don't long to look into it like we once did. I'm going to ask you guys to bow your heads, and I just want us to take maybe 60 seconds in silence, and I want you to listen for God's voice, and then I'll close this in prayer. Father in heaven, we want to hear from you. And a lot of times that's really hard to make out. You, you stir our hearts or you put a thought in our mind, and, and it's hard to discern. Is that just me thinking something or is that you speaking? So I pray that you would speak to us clearly. If not right now in this moment, this week as we think about and mull over what your word has said to us this morning. Some in our midst are really going through a difficult time, a hard season. So we pray that you would protect them and shield them and work your salvation in their life here and now. 
there are others of us who you're calling to come alongside of people in difficult situations. So please give us grace and compassion and wisdom and creativity to know how to help bear those burdens of the people around us that we love and care about. For all of us, would you please feel the desire to know more about your salvation, to really bask in it and the wonder of it all. Help us not to ever take it for granted. We pray that it would show up in our day-to-day lives in real and practical ways that are noticed by the people around us. Because we want you to receive praise, honor, and glory. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
thank you so much for being here. We just ask that you would speak to someone you don't know before you head out the door, and we're so glad to see you. Have a great week, and we'll see you next week.